Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Justin Kaufman, and this is Reset. Joe Biden accepts the Democratic nomination for president. Protesters banned from Mayor Lightfoot's block. CPS puts out guidelines for remote learning and a 2020 plan for Chicago that would even make Daniel Burnham blush. All those stories in one segment. It must be time for the Friday News Roundup. Joe Biden took the stage as the Democratic nominee on the final night of his party's convention. Police Superintendent David Brown says residential protesting is illegal in Chicago. A pandemic and civil unrest that has turned ugly may mean layoffs or furloughs for the city's next budget. Dubbed We Will Chicago, the citywide plan would be a blueprint for zoning, development, investment, and other local government programs. We are living in very different times, and I've seen the threats that have come in, and I have an obligation to keep my home, my wife, my 12-year-old, and my neighbors safe. Mm. Joining us now to help break down these stories and more, Chicago Sun-Times columnist and ABC political analyst Laura Washington. Laura, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Justin. Great to be with you. Also with us, WTTW Chicago political reporter Heather Sharon. Hey, Heather. Hi, Justin. All right. What a week. But you can roll all the way back to the protests that happened over the weekend and the fallout from that. And that really can start us in this conversation Heather, it, the week started with uh, two different narratives. The police came out quick on Sunday and went to the national talk shows. Uh, the mayor was on Face the Nation talking about uh, these were agitators, and they started it, and the protesters said, wait a second, the police were the ones that were aggressive. It was an ugly start to the week for Chicago. It was, and I think it's a you know an indication that while some people might have thought, well, we've sort of moved past those police brutality, systemic racism protests that we saw really sweep the country in the wake of George Floyd's death in Minneapolis police custody. These issues are very much still with us, especially in Chicago, where except for changes to the school resource officer program, there's really been no changes in how the Chicago Police Department does its job, and that has really sort of put people who want to see big changes um, on a collision course in some cases with the department. Laura, a weekend that started, and it was interesting, too, to see how it kind of played out this week, because as we heard in the the montage, there are no longer protesters uh, welcome on the mayor's block. Uh, That's new because we all know Rahm Emanuel had a lot of protests in front of his house up in Ravenswood, and they might have cordoned off areas, but there wasn't necessarily a ban. That's correct. Lori Lightfoot and her supporters would say that the difference here is that we're, of course, in very different times. We're in in the middle of a number of different crises, some of which we just described in terms of the looting. And because of that, she has been facing a lot of threat. And actually, I think that's true. I've seen a lot of the commentary on social media, on some of the cop uh, websites, uh, police officer Mm -hmm. websites, that folks that don't like her have taken to the digital airways and they've said some pretty hostile things. And so it's no surprise that she's concerned for her welfare. The challenge is, though, that you, you know, you can't on the one hand say that you support civil protests, you support uh, people having the right to have free speech and then try to cordon right. off. That's what her, her critics are going to say. You can't try to cordon off your own neighborhood because you don't like what people have to say when they get there. Yeah. Uh, there hasn't been much evidence of rampant violence or inappropriate illegal activity during some of these protests. It's, it's just that it makes her and her family nervous. Stick to the narrative a little bit. The police superintendent, David Brown, came out and said protesting in neighborhoods is just not legal. Here, I want to play a clip of him. This is what he says. 
What we try to do is err on the side of First Amendment rights. And so we give some, a little bit of wiggle room there. We compromise. Except for the embedded violence we've seen. We have to accept that that's a reality today. It's unprecedented that you would embed violent offenders in a peaceful protest, but that's what's happened. I mean, that has been the police's line. But, Laura, when, you, when it really comes down, as you just mentioned, optics, we get into a spot where is it really necessarily about threats to her safety, which is serious, or is it about being illegal protesting in neighborhoods, which I've never heard of? That's absolutely true. I mean, she is saying that it's okay for everyone else but to be able to allow for protests, but not for her. When you talk about these protesters, you also have to balance that with some of the testimony that we've heard this week. Folks that have testified before the monitor, the court-ordered monitor for the consent decree, who's asked to hear from some of the protesters who feel that they have been abused and mistreated by police officers during the protests over the last several months. And some of these stories are very compelling, Mm -hmm. and they don't seem to be coming from folks, what you would call anarchists or people who are out for no good. They're people who are just out there voicing their right to protest. Well, the prevailing notion as well is that there is a public safety issue in Chicago. That's a national storyline, but it's also local. Uh, Heather, today, the city council essentially forced the hand of the mayor to say, you have to come together and we need to talk about whether or not we should lobby to bring the National Guard to Chicago. I mean, that's something that you rarely see because it seemed like the mayor was dismissive of that notion and she kind of got forced into it because so many aldermen stepped forward. That's right. There were 47 aldermen present at the city council meeting, and it was the rare situation where going into the city council, you didn't know who was going to show up, You really, if anyone. So there were 17 aldermen who voted to hold a debate and potentially a vote on whether to ask Governor Pritzker to call out the National Guard. However, many of those aldermen voted that way because they wanted to vote against calling the National Guard into Chicago. And it's important to remember that that has happened precisely twice in recent Chicago history, once in 1968 and then once during the protests in the wake of George Floyd's death. So this is not sort of a typical response to violence. And there's really a sense that the National Guard could make this situation worse, not better, among some aldermen, especially since the National Guard aren't trained police officers. Mm -hmm. They aren't trained to understand what really the rules of engagement between officers and Chicagoans are. They don't know what the consent decree requires. So there are many aldermen who thought it was just a really bad idea. But at the same token, there there are a small number of aldermen who believe that, believe that the violence in Chicago is so out of hand and that the police department is so overwhelmed that they need additional help. Yeah, and Laura, in my head, I'm saying, okay, so you're going to talk about violence and gun violence as we know it here in Chicago, and that's a continuing conversation. But then you add into the fact that a lot of the downtown aldermen and people in that area are now concerned about looting after what we saw uh, two weeks ago. So it starts to get muddled in what exactly they want the National Guard to do. That's absolutely correct. And I think many people see that even if you take the National Guard on its face and, and assume that it's going to come in and it's going to be productive, and I, I think that the, the challenges that Heather points out are, are very real, and we've seen this happen in other cities where bringing the National Guard has really backfired and just really denigrated police community relations even further. Even if you take it on face value, what happens when they leave? The National Guard cannot stay here forever. The National Guard is not going to address the endemic underlying long-term social and economic problems that have stirred up these issues and have brought folks to the streets. So I think what some of the aldermen are also saying, okay, maybe not the National Guard, but we need a plan. We are not satisfied and happy with what Lifewood and the police department have come up with so far. We're concerned about 
getting through the rest of the summer and COVID. And so they're looking for other answers. I mean, part of the reason why the four aldermen that called for this meeting came for was not just about the National Guard. It was about transparency and about not being engaged and included in conversations between the police department and the mayor about how to Mm -hmm. fix the problems in the city. And I think that they're looking for more transparency and more input. Heather, this is a big week for looking to the future. Uh, We Will Chicago is the transformative plan that was announced yesterday uh, by the mayor's planning commission. This came out of what they did with the COVID-19 task force, but it's the first city plan since Harold Washington. That's amazing for me to hear, but this is a moment where this could be something that the mayor could hang her hat on. Yes, it could. And this is sort of what I imagine Mayor Lightfoot imagined being mayor of Chicago was going to be like back in May of 2019. She thought that she was really going to have a chance to sort of tackle the lack of planning, tackle sort of really the fundamental issues that made City Hall operate really not for the benefit of all Chicagoans equally, but for the benefit of the wealthy, the white, and the well-connected. And, you know, I think that she got sidetracked by that. It's really been one crisis after another because, you know, there was the massive budget deficit. And, of course, the budget deficit's even going to be bigger this year than it was last year. There was the teacher strike. Oh, and then there was the coronavirus pandemic. Oh, and, you know, she needed a new police chief because she fired Eddie Johnson. It's really been nonstop. But this is sort of, you can see the mayor's face sort of light up when she talks about these sort of long-term issues that could potentially have a real impact on the Chicago of the future. Yeah, and I just wish in this conversation we had somebody who worked in the Harold Washington administration. I just wish we had one person. Oh, that's right. Laura Washington did, right. Uh, To hear that there hasn't been a city plan since uh, Harold and the impact of that, what's your thought on that? Well, I think it says a lot about how our mayors uh, think about the city, and I think it goes back to the the issue that Heather raised, the the sort of the divide between the haves and the have-nots, and the fact that most mayors have not been expansive in the way in terms of the, the way they look at how you participate in civic engagement and in planning and in, in outreach in a city like Chicago. Many mayors before her and between Harold Washington and her have looked at, to the downtown powerhouses, the downtown folks on the various boards and commissions to make the plans and to do much of that planning behind closed doors. And it's an interesting contrast between Harold Washington and Lori Lightfoot because, of course, Harold Washington's plans took a long time to pick up steam and take off because he was stymied by his city council opposition. He didn't have COVID, he didn't have riots, but he had a city council opposition Mm -hmm. that that kept him from uh, putting forward his agenda. And like Lori Lightfoot, he also ran on a reform agenda. So she may see that for different reasons in Harold Washington, it may take her a while to roll this out. But this is what a mayor lives for. A mayor doesn't live to fight fires every day. A mayor lives to be able to create a legacy, a long-lasting legacy that will take the city forward. And so that's why I think the lights in her eyes, as Heather described. Laura, the takeaway on We Will Chicago, because I love it, too. I, I get kind of geeked up about the idea of a plan, because you think of Daniel Burnham, you think make no little plans, they don't stir uh, blood, that kind of thing. And that's very Chicago. But at the same time, it's a little vague in the way that they kind of set this up, and there's going to be a lot that has to happen moving forward. But this is an opportunity to take on one of the biggest issues of Chicago, which is segregation, to desegregate the city, to bring equity to different areas that have never been there before. Sure, and I think that that is at the heart of solving these long-term problems that we are discussing, you know, in terms of violent crime, in terms of 
economic disparities that has led to some of the civil unrest in terms of police brutality, they all come back to the city being economically and racially segregated. And if we're ever going to actually solve those problems, bringing in the National Guard is, is a short-term Band-Aid. The, the longer-term possible solution lies in good planning and engaging all of the city in that planning. Heather, I want to talk about, you know, you're, it's going to take some money to do this. Uh, the mayor is sounding the alarm on the city finances. She says that layoffs can't be ruled out if lawmakers in Washington don't act. I mean, the budget is a serious concern. And if it's layoffs, if it's furloughs, if it's property tax increases, that could be a real harm to the plans that she's laid out in this We Will Chicago City plan. Oh, absolutely. It's really hard to describe the scope of the financial crisis facing uh, the city without sounding a little bit alarmist and maybe a little crazy. Um, But I am happy to bear that burden because it is a bad, bad situation. So if you cast your memory back a year ago, the city's budget forecast looked ahead to 2021 and said facing a $1.6 billion deficit. That was before the coronavirus was a twinkle in anyone's eye. So things are in really, really poor shape. We should know a little bit more in the next couple of weeks about exactly what the city is facing. Ah, That deficit was, was, uh, I mean, $1.6 before the coronavirus. So you can understand that's going to be a big issue moving forward. Uh, Now we move on to talk about schools, a little bit about the DNC as well. Our panel today, Chicago Sun-Times columnist and ABC7 political analyst Laura Washington and WTTW Chicago politics reporter Heather Sharon. Heather, when we think about Chicago public schools and they unveiled their remote-only guidelines, the guidelines that uh, what remote-only learning for the fall is going to look like, again gets back to the heart of the issue for Chicagoans is why is CPS and CTU not on the same page? Why is every decision that's made by the school district in Chicago turn into a big argument? It's a pretty frequent occurrence, isn't it, Justin? Uh, I think there are a lot of things going on here. Um, One, CPS got a lot of criticism in the spring for not really having a well-developed digital plan for learning. So they're trying to sort of correct those deficiencies, but that is going to put a lot of burden on teachers who are also going to have to adapt to this brave new world that we find ourselves in. And there are some really stark differences between what teachers want and what the administration wants and so it's going to be a fight whether you know how it actually comes out laura when we think about it because i think it was jesse sharkey on twitter said something to the effect this is a hundred year old school plan shoved on the internet you know something something of that paraphrasing for his uh his tweet he put out right after this came out he has a point in the way that it's not as innovative as some of the other big school districts around the country and so the question is is that something that uh they have a point on when it comes to the teachers union they do have a point, and the CPS is saying that they have heard some of the criticisms and they, they understand some of the problems that we had in the spring, and they have built on and learned from those criticisms, and their new reopening framework is much better than it was in the spring. Teachers' Union says it's not good enough, and in particular, they say that there hasn't been enough information, then there hasn't been enough access to what they call the infrastructure that they need to teach, you know, supplies, textbooks, computers, software, and they say that this is part of their contract and that there's been no response or, or any indication that CPS plans on responding to this. And they say, you know, rightly so, uh, this is a whole new world for all of us out here. We have to teach mm-hmm. differently. We have to have more training. We have to learn how to collaborate not only with our colleagues but also with parents so that they can be part of this process. And they say that CPS has really not been very vocal about how that's going to happen. Yeah, Heather, even today, I mean, on the flip side, you see the teachers in Catholic schools are complaining about uh, going back to school and it not being safe. 
that everything that yeah. they talked about, uh, social distancing between the kids and protective gear for the teachers. I think the quote was terrified. And so here we go on the flip side. I mean, you can get into what is wrong with remote learning, but we're also seeing what possibly could be wrong with going back to school. Yeah, what happens with the Catholic schools as they start to reopen will be very interesting to watch. Uh, there was a great story in the Tribune today about a teacher out of Wilmette who, you know, didn't feel comfortable going back to the classroom, and she was terminated by the archdiocese in Park Ridge. Mary's Seat of Wisdom was scheduled to open, but is now delayed until after Labor Day because an administrator tested positive for the coronavirus. You know, we have seen time and again in this pandemic that you can plan and plan and plan plan all you want, but the virus, you know, sort of won't listen to what you want it to do. It, it will simply spread if given the opportunity. And it's very nerve wracking for parents, myself included, because, you know, I'm certainly not looking forward to more months of remote learning, but it does mm -hmm. sort of seems the less bad option because it gives me more control over the health and safety of my kids. But again, there are things going to be lost, including their sort of social development. I think about, too, Laura, just the idea that uh, it, this week and this we've seen schools go back. We've seen other schools go remote. I mean, there isn't really a standard in Chicago. And I understand Chicago Public Schools is going to do it one way and they're the biggest district. But when you talk about different school districts in the suburbs and other areas, there just doesn't seem like there's one unified way that we're approaching bringing kids back to not just campuses and college, but to the schools in, in high school and elementary. That's true, although uh, the, the Pritzker administration, uh, J.B. Pritzker, has put out, his State of Board of Education has put out guidelines and recommendations, but it is a district-by-district district question. And that has been the challenge of COVID throughout Illinois since March, that it's a district-by-district, community-by-community challenge in terms of how much fear is out there, how impacted neighborhoods and communities are. Some communities feel that they're very much unaffected and they feel free and willing and relatively fearless to reopen, and that would include reopening their schools. Other communities are not so certain. And I think the biggest problem is that this virus is fast-moving and very prevalent and it seems to be very stubborn, and that creates a lot of uncertainty and a lot of people who just really feel like we need to just wait and see and take a conservative approach. And so folks that are not doing that are kind of sticking out and creating a lot more controversy. One of my favorite, I would say, heartwarming moments this week is watching a lot of friends on my social media feeds posting their kids' um, back to school photos and they're just sitting at their computer. <laughs> it's, it's something right. it kind of reminds us how everything has changed and how uh, we're all kind of in this together. I mentioned campuses because I had it in my mind about Notre Dame, which started up and had some an outbreak quick and they had to shut it down and go remote learning. Uh, U of I starts next week, which is going to be a big issue. And they're, they've got a big innovative approach with a saliva test and constant testing. Heather, college campuses are going to be interesting as it's time to go back to school. And most of them are trying to get students back on campus. That's right. You know, the problem is, is that, and we've seen this time and again, that you have to have a significant amount of restrictions in place, because if you just leave it up to people to use their best judgment, uh, they won't use very good judgment. And I vaguely remember being a college student at one point, <laughs> uh, you know, a very long time ago. And you want to go party. You want to hang out with your friends. You don't want to wear a mask. You know, you want to have a good time. 
And we have seen that that will immediately allow the virus to start spreading immediately, despite the best laid plans. It's going to be fascinating to watch what happens in U of I at Urbana-Champaign because they have an innovative new way to test for the coronavirus. It uses saliva, none of that deep nasal swab where it you know, reaches into your brain cavity. And they have said that they will test 20,000 people a day and that people will be tested twice a week. And that is what the experts have told us is necessary on a wide scale to keep the virus mm. from spreading. Because once you know you're infected, you will quarantine. Yeah. And if you know it quickly, now this test can give results in like less than six hours. So if you know quickly, then your chances of spreading it is significantly yeah. less. And it's part of the, the college routine now. You got to go to the library and mess hall or, or the mess hall sounds very military. But, <laughs> <laughs> how long I've been in co- away from college. But the, but the idea being that it's part of the procedure now. I mean, that's part of being a, a college student. All right, let's make a transition. Our, la- our last segment really is the DNC. The virtual DNC took place this week. It was supposed to be in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It became a virtual event that ended last night with former Vice President Joe Biden accepting the Democratic nomination with a speech in Delaware. Laura, you've covered these conventions uh, off throughout your career. What do you think of the virtual DNC? Well, I'm one of those people who was so sorry I couldn't get to Milwaukee yet. Political conventions are what reporters live for. And, of course, part of it is the importance of covering a historic event and seeing the nominations of major parties. But part of it is a lot of fun. And you get a chance to network and, and hang out with your peers and with politicians in, in a way that you don't normally. So I was disappointed. But I had to say that, to my pleasant surprise, I was very impressed with the way the DNC pulled this party, so to speak, off. Uh, It was almost completely virtual, but it was compelling. In some ways, we've learned that you don't have to have, uh, you know, thousands of people screaming and and waving signs in a room to be compelling. Speeches, some of the video presentations were very compelling, both because they were much more intimate and were really focused, and you could actually listen and hear them over the screaming and yelling, because there wasn't any screaming and yelling. But there was also that it gave the party an opportunity to present a much broader spectrum of its members and, and of the folks that they were representing in those stadiums. I think it came off well, and I suspect that what we're hearing is that in the future, the, the parties will probably do sort of a hybrid thing where they will maybe scale down the actual in-person events and not have necessarily all the big events in that big stadium, yeah. but they will do much many more events. So via, many people, via, right. Exactly. So many people show up to those conventions. Uh, Heather, Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth got some primetime coverage last night with her speech. We knew she would uh, sort of lean in on uh, Donald Trump, but she went after him, calling him the coward-in-chief, uh, really sort of poking holes in his foreign policy record as president. She did. And it was interesting because especially her speech and the speech by former President Obama were almost calibrated in a way that wouldn't have worked in a big screaming convention hall. Their tone was sober and serious and a little bit designed to make people not so much stand up and cheer, but sort of, you know, take a deep breath and resolve to either make a plan to vote or to make a decision on how to vote. And that is atypical for a convention. You know, Laura has been to far more conventions than I have, but 
there was very little note of celebration mm-hmm. this time around, right. with the exception of the roll call vote, which, you know, had little <laughs> snippets of video from each 50 states. Yeah, and, Carol Mosley Braun. Right, Illinois, right, right, right. Yeah. But, you know, even then that was tinged with sadness in a way, because, you know, for example, you had Matthew Shepard's parents delivering the delegates for Biden from Wyoming. Of course, their son was killed in a horrible um, hate crime. And then you had Kazir Khan delivering the votes from uh, Charlottesville, where, of course, you know, there was the alt-right march um, and his son was killed in Iraq and then, you know, was really belittled by the president four years ago. You know, it it was almost a a moment of nationwide mourning at a time when it's usually a celebration in some sense. Laura, obviously we'll do a week in review next week on the Republican convention. But for this one, the one criticism was uh, there wasn't much of a youth movement. It was a nostalgic trip looking back and and really painting the picture that, you know, Joe Biden has an extensive experience in in doing this kind of job. Progressives as well kind of left out of the dance. Is that going to be a concern for Democrats moving forward, that the strategy seems to be to talk about the trusted old uh, grizzled senator who was former Vice President Joe Biden? I think that the progressive voices were heard. Maybe they didn't get as much media attention as possible as they might have, but the Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warrens and there were and the AOCs and, and there were other younger voices. I think that the purpose of this convention, um, uh, maybe it didn't work, but the purpose was to show that the party was united. If you remember four years ago, there, yeah, right. there, there was the Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton factions were fighting it all out on the, on the convention floor. And it, at one point, people weren't sure where the delegates were going to go. This time, there was not one murmur of dissent. Uh, everyone was on board. It was very important to not have any drama, to not have any protests, to be able to come out of this convention with a unified, focused message. I think there's going to be a lot more work to do, around, the, particularly around the young vote. But I think that young people don't watch conventions anyway. They didn't even see it. <laughs> uh, anybody under 30, 35, forget about it. But they do watch the social media. So they're going to take very selected snippets, virtual snippets uh, that were produced for the convention and maybe build around those and use those to market to the younger voters in the fall. Oh, I tried, Laura. I tried to, I was pulling teeth to get my 13-year-old to watch any of it <laughs> last night. Not interested at all. Not a voter, of course, but not interested in the, in the civic process. <laughs> if it's now on the phone, forget about it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. All right. Well, that's it for the Friday News Roundup. Thanks to our panel today, Laura Washington of the Chicago Sun-Times and ABC7 and Heather Sharon of WTTW. Thanks both for joining us today. Thanks, Thanks Justin. Well, that's it for Reset. We'll be back on Monday. If you don't mind, I'd like to thank the people who produce this show and this podcast. Meha Ahmad, Steve Bynum, Stephanie Kim, Jason Mark, Bianca Martin, Nareda Moreno, production assistants from Alize Hassan and Zach Wilson. Dan Tucker is the executive producer. and Dave Miska is our engineer. I'm Justin Kaufman. Like I said, we'll be back here on Monday. Thanks for listening. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.